Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. And good evening. Welcome to the show. This is Yona Budd. You are on the Road to Recovery. Thank you for joining us this evening. We know you have other choices, and we're so glad you chose us. You're in the studio tonight with myself, Natasha, and Corey, and uh, trying to do what we can to share some information and get you excited about some new uh, new stuff and uh, just get your opinions when possible on the things that we'd like to talk about here tonight. If you want to play with us here tonight, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255 is how you reach us, and we'd love to hear from you. It keeps Natasha on her toes. So make sure you give us a call. Say hi, Natasha. Say be nice to her and uh, share your opinions with us. How do you feel? about this city under siege by the way i could never be prouder of toronto cops than i am this evening they're doing an amazing job of managing what is potentially a real mess and uh, i give them uh, high fives and kudos and hope they stay safe out there as they're continuing to keep us safe out there but it is a mess out you know it's not enough to be locked down with an illness. It's not lo- enough to be locked down with a virus. Now we're being locked down with the protesters, people all over Canada, in Ottawa and parts of Manitoba and other parts of, the, of, of Canada, where people are just uncomfortable getting out of their houses. They feel trapped and, you know, under siege, if you will, and just succumb to all of this noise and honking and horrible nonsense. And uh, fortunately... Um, People have started to wake up now. They've stopped the funding pages. They're giving back most of the $10 million either to a charity, uh, a proper charity, or to people who want to get their money back. So if you're interested in getting your donation back and realize, "Uh uh-oh, really didn't want to write a check to this kind of a mess to support this, so you can get your money back. I think you have up until February 19th to make that claim. And you know what? i got to tell you, it's um, where I am right now, uh, I'm at a point where I'm trying to understand um, where we are as a people. I'm really kind of just shaking my head and trying to understand where we are as a people. You know, everybody wants to get out and get their get themselves known and, you know, speak their mind, which is great. That's the country we live in and the society that we, we've created for ourselves. But you know what? You know, there there has to be some semblance of normalcy, and it kind of leads me to my to my next story here, um, because I read an article uh, it was out on January the 29th, I believe it was the Toronto Star, um, and it says Toronto's full of noise, so why crack down on kids playing in an annex playing gra- uh, playground? So what caught me is that even during this pandemic, where kids are really at risk. And, and people are having a real hard time, you know, keeping their children um, engaged and outside and healthy and so on. Uh, the article goes on to say that an early pandemic evening walk drifting through South Etobicoke led this fellow Jeff Healy Park uh, near the Queensway and Park Lawn. Uh, the park is uh, tucked in alongside the west bank of the Mimico Creek. It's a beautiful little park, as a matter of fact. As we entered via the footpath from Bonnie View Drive, there was a little coyote standing on the creek bridge. But it quickly scampered off as it saw us. But for some, they're an urban nuisance. For others, it's just part of a shared ecosystem. A little farther down the path is an array of musical instruments that include a xylophone-like vibes with sticks, bongo drums, and other bell-like music makers. It was pleasant for these kids to play with them, and they are a nice homage to the park's musician namesake. Such things are uh, are also a nuisance to some people, apparently. They will tolerate... 
screaming and yelling and honking and crazy horns and noises in the middle of our city. But this article goes on to say that it's not such an easy thing for people to live with the beautiful sound of bells and musical instruments coming from kids playing it at a park. And over in the annex um, where the sound and the rumble of the subway uh, can be heard everywhere, this is uh, at the Joseph Burr Tyrrell Park, um, they, the, they have been removed. The colorful bells um, that make this noise, these beautiful noises, were removed in, they were installed in December and they were removed after the city received a complaint that children were in fact playing the bells. Like, we put them there so kids could make music in the Jeff Healy Park. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, where you we have issues where uh, over at the annex at the Joseph Burr Park, these kids were playing bells. At, jo- at, at the Jeff Healy Park, they're able to play musical instruments and congos and drums and stuff that's built into the park. But at Joseph Burr, people are complaining that they don't like the sound of the kids playing the bells. It's remarkable easy for a handful of squeaky wheel people, right, as the article goes on to say. It's amazing how some just a small number of people can make such a big deal about such a small thing and get, the, and get action. That's remarkable. I've been working with guns and gangs folks and youth gun, guns and gangs folks for years and we're in, in the government's face, we're, we're, we're sharing stories, we're on media everywhere we can be, on our, on our show, on shows before, before me at a, in a, in a, at a different network. And we're still struggling with how to keep young people alive and keep them from killing each other. It's amazing how a handful of people in that park, live now that near that park, could affect such a massive change. The bells are reminiscent of the removal of benches at the corner of Church and Alexander Streets back in the day. The benches arrived around when the famous Steps two blocks north, the see-and-be-seen gathering spot for a couple of decades in the gay village, were bricked up by the property owner, destroying a a hallowed semi-public space. The completely public gathering space at Alexander saw the benches removed a few years ago, as with the bells of the annex, because people were actually using them, sitting on them, talking, hanging out. I, we're making bad choices, folks. We're, 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 we're complaining about all the wrong things. Uh, today, that corner is, is a place to pass through, not linger. It's, it's, it's not a place where you could sit like you used to in the old days. You know, urban noise is a real issue with real consequences. I know people that can't sleep unless they hear traffic. I know people that can't sleep unless they don't hear traffic. Noise is a big deal for lots of people. But certainly the sound of kids playing bells, and I can't imagine they're playing bells in the middle of the night, they must be playing the bells during the day. What's the big deal? Obviously a big deal enough that they had them removed. Traffic is by far the loudest problem we have in our city. Lawnmowers, leaf blowers, you know, uh, machinery in the streets doing construction overnight, um, you know, cleaning up snow, the snow removal equipment. You're going to hear it. I mean, in my condo, I hear when they come to clean the, the, the streets and to clean the, the, the space, the parking space and the walkways. And, of course, they come in the middle of the night. They're not going to come during the day when there's tons of people around. They come in the middle of the night. It's when they do their work. It's going to make noise. Okay, I can live with it. It's wintertime in the city. That's what happens. You know, look at the, at the property values that are adjacent to some of these parks. And look at, look at, the, at, at, at what's happening as, as they've tried to flip, you know, space into more communal space. That's going to be, it's going to be noisy. It's going to be noisy with kids playing. Listen, outside my condo, uh, where we live, there's a whole area of, of, of townhomes below us and, um, there's tons of kids in the neighborhood. It's a kid friendly, animal friendly, uh, neighborhood and uh, it's part of a community. It's a close knit community that we live in here. I love hearing the kids in the morning early, sometimes earlier than I'm ready to get out of bed, but it's really cool. 
hear kids playing. Much better than not. You know, kids playing, what an incredible sound. You can hear people, excuse me, parents yelling at their kids, at their dogs. You know, doing what they can. You can hear dogs barking. You can hear, you know, basketballs dribbling in the summertime. You can hear kids being kids, teenagers being teenagers. Not a big deal. I don't understand what the problem is here. But a line between a small village and a big city somewhere exists here in Canada, somewhere in Toronto, somewhere in the GTA. And we need to understand, we need to do a better job of understanding how we're able to um, allow for the, the noise that comes from living in a community that is surrounded by kids and animals and people having fun. If you notice during the pandemic, there weren't a lot of noises outside because people weren't going outside. It's a sound of us returning to some kind of normal. Children need to be able to go to the park and yell and scream and ooh and goo and giggle and laugh and do what kids do. That's what we need to allow our children to do. That's what we need to be better at in this community of the GTA that we live in. And certainly bells in a park where kids can play. I can't believe somebody actually tabled that as an issue and that somewhere in, in municipal government, someone made a decision to remove it. You know, I'll tell you, the wealthy Mar uh, Markham Enclave of Royal Yorkshire, they complained so incessantly about the North, the new um, uh, North Young subway coming that Metro Links actually changed the direction or the, where the subway stop was going to be. We can't pretend it's a city. We live in a city. We have to understand it's a city with all of its noises and all of its bells and whistles and all of the beauty that comes with living in such an incredible city as is Toronto. When we come back, we're going to join. We're going to talk about a whole bunch more stuff. Um, talk about overdose issues uh, with kids in schools. Yeah, we're talking about high school kids, uh, middle school kids. So uh, it's a real problem. So join me in a few minutes. We'll be right back. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. I'm Yona Bud, your host this evening. I appreciate you joining us, and um, we just love having you here. We know that you've got other choices, and we're glad that you choose us. You know, there, this week there's a 13-year-old boy that was, uh, last week I believe, a 13-year-old boy um, was involved in shooting a 15-year-old and killing him. Um, several guns were found. Um, 13-year-old, had been he's been charged with fatally shooting this 15-year-old uh, allegedly after allegedly days before stealing narcotics from a pharmacy at gunpoint. Um, that shouldn't be shocking. Anyway, wake-up call to the city facing the epidemic. Uh, ja, um, ja Rain Taylor was 14 when he was first given a gun uh, by a 44-year-old man. Now, Taylor is 28. He's a former gang member who works with Toronto uh, youth who are involved in criminal activity. Uh, he'd like he was he would see the older guys in the neighborhood counting money. He said, explaining how he came to decide that that's what he wanted. You won't if you won't respect me. <clears throat> excuse me. You will learn to fear me. He would say. He was a fearless kid. He said and be, and had to be and needed to be taken seriously. He started breaking into cars and accumulating his own money until he was given a gun. It was like being groomed by a predator. He would say. Older gang members took advantage of his youth, his recklessness. And the fact that as a minor, he'd face less harsh consequences under the youth criminal justice system. Taylor says the same thing he's experienced is happening today, adding that people trying to fight young violence are ringing alarms that both the predators and the victims are just seem to be getting younger. We call it eating our young. My friend Marcel Wilson, a former gangland leader, a gang leader, excuse me, who also works with youth in Toronto, founded the group, one nonprofit group, One by One Movement. He said, 
it would have been unusual in the 20, early 20s for a 13-year-old to have a gun. Uh, having a gun as a youth was a very powerful thing because of how, it, how rare it was. It gave you a reputation really quick, he said. Now it's part of the norm, he said. It's not shocking that it should, uh, as it should be. Marcel Wilson asked a group of 16s he works with, age 12 to 17, some of whom were recently released from custody and youth detention, about their experience. And they said they could obtain a gun in hours if they wanted to, and that they knew people who had been shot, and some had actually shot them, had been shot themselves. A lot depends on where you live, the teens would say. Wilson says that he sees the influence of social media clout, changing, clout chasing and glamorization of gun violence in local rap scenes is one of the reasons that this all comes together. Uh, black Toronto neighborhoods see more homicides but less support for victims. Uh, black people are disproportionately impacted by homicides in the neighborhood. This report, led by the University of Toronto Associate Professor Tanya Sharp, looks into how predominantly African, Caribbean, and black neighborhoods are at increased risk and calls for both the collection of more race-based data and more research that amplifies the voices and experience of black survivors of homicide victims. I'm fortunate to have both of these people join me this evening. I have Tanya Sharp and I have Marcel Wilson. Good evening to both of you. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for being here. Hey, Marcel, how you doing, brother? It's been a while. I'm great, brother. How are you? I'm good. Thank you both for joining us. Um, you know, Marcel will tell you, uh, Tanya, that um, it's okay to call you Tanya. Yeah. Yeah, fine. Okay, perfect. Um, Marcel will tell you that we've been talking about this for years. I'm sure you have as well, both uh, himself, myself, uh, Louis Marsh. So, you know, we're certainly on this show and any other show I've ever had. This has been a, a, a predominant topic for us uh, for years already. Um, I'm going to start off with Tanya, uh, if that's okay. By the way, Tanya Sharp, she's assistant professor at the University of Toronto and uh, involved in uh, helping uh, neighborhoods. And, and Marcel, as you know, is the founder of the One by One movement, who's actually in the streets talking to people, working with kids, and uh, supporting them as mentors. Uh, Tanya, this is like this is getting. Um, God, you know, it always seems to be that my opening comment is always the same, and it's getting a little much. It seems to be that we're having this discussion. They're getting younger, more frequent, more brazen. Um, is this really just a black thing, do you think? <laughs> wow, you, you, you started there. Um, so <laughs> I got, I got I, limited time. I, you started there. Um, so when I get asked this question, um, and I have quite often, and after two decades of doing this work, I think um, when we go there, it's, it's really a misdirection and a, and a verbal slide of hand, I think, to skirt the issues, which is why uh, the Center for Research and Innovation for Black Survivors of Homicide Victims, the CRIB, the center that I founded, really just released this report to really talk about the social determinants of homicide, the root causes of homicide, um, really asking us to look at the fact that African Caribbean Black folk get uh, and receive low pay wages compared to other populations, unequal educational opportunities, insufficient housing, uh, they're surveilled, mass incarceration. And so when you think about those perpetual structural inequities that are inherently violent, we really need to start looking at those contributing factors to the increase that we're seeing in homicide. Um, I think that's, that's, that's where we, we really need to go. Um, and to the sort of black-on-black -black crime question that I'm often getting, you know, crimes are carried out due to proximity. And so if you have white individuals living in a predominantly white neighborhood, uh, there's a higher likelihood that they will 
uh, enact crimes against one, each other, one another, but you never hear white-on-white crime. And so I, I do think it's a sleight of hand, and I'd like to focus on, again, the structural inequities that are contributing to, to this pandemic of grief that African-American Black people are experiencing. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and again, don't don't misunderstand my question. As far as I'm concerned, it, it's it's a systemic issue, not just in particular neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. But I think with I think with youth in general, um, Marcel, you know, um, you, and, you and I have talked about this before. In this particular case with this particular kid, it's interesting because the kid that he killed, the kid that was shot uh, and uh, later uh, pa- you know passed away, um, he was actually not from that neighborhood. He actually lived with his grandma somewhere else. Uh, great kid, doing well, all kinds of good supports. Uh, visited, I guess, his mom maybe in that neighborhood, from what I read, and in some way, shape, or form, got you know got into an altercation with this guy. But it, you know, you and I have talked about it. It's no longer just uh, kids and kids and youth from uh, quote unquote difficult neighborhoods, or to Tanya's point, uh, uh, you know, areas of uh, where people are of color. Um, there, we're seeing you know Caucasian kids from middle class neighborhoods starting to play this ki- this game as well. Um, how do we intervene there? I mean, you know, we can talk about you know more more social hubs and more youth hubs, which I'm all on side for, and I, I'm totally on Tanya's side as it relates to you know focusing on neighborhoods. Neighborhoods where where it's not uh, socially um, you know socially uh, um, evened out, if you will, it, it doesn't seem to be an equal an equal play against against all all you know all uh, lines. But we're seeing, you're seeing um, kids that aren't coming from you know quote unquote difficult neighborhoods acting out with gun violence. Where are we going with that? Well, yeah, to to, to touch on Tanya's point and both of your guys' points, um, this is. Definitely not a black problem in Canada. This is a Canadian problem. This is an all of us problem. I've been saying that for a while. Um, we're seeing this type of violence, uh, this type of attitude, kind of migrate now uh, across the city, um, where where you know we're seeing seeing shootings in broad daylight. We're seeing seeing shootings in mall malls. We're seeing shootings uh, of people of all different ages and races, so, sort of happening. But again, uh, Tanya kind of touched on it. The only way to really address it is to deal with the root cause issues. You know, prevention is cheaper than an intervention. We have to start dealing with the issues that lead kids to want to even commit an act of violence. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, we're starting with parenting. We're starting with ed- right. the education system. We're, we're, right. you know, it kind of has to come from the top down. Everyone thinks that we have to rebuild communities and that the community the attitudes in the communities have to change. But when you're under constant pressure and you're under, you know, you're already sort of, for lack of better terms, at the bottom of the barrel, constantly trying to fight your way up. And you have all these, all of these issues that kind of come at you from every angle. You know, we need people from the top to really understand that we need to deal with the root cause issues. And once we do that, we'll start seeing a decline in the violence, I think. Yeah. yeah. Our, our friend, our friend Louis March would say that it's not about the roots, it's about the seeds and we need right. to plant them sooner. Uh, let me read you. Let me read you something here. For a lot, this goes on to uh, to the the same um, same article that Marcel was uh, recently quoted on uh, in. Excuse me. For a lot of them, they aren't even necessarily violent themselves. They are victims of their environment. Wilson says. Uh, but once they there's access to a firearm, it can escalate. They get curious. They want to make money. Then unfortunately, ends up using firearms to get the things that they want. Wilson says that he sees the influence of social media, clout chasing, and the glamorization of gun violence um, as part of the local rap scene as an indicator as well. 
you know, Tanya, you're, you're, you're um, you know, you're a, a, an educated woman. You're, you're, uh, you know, involved in this in this type of, of work. You're talking to communities and people and doing studies and involved in activities that you know look into this kind of stuff. You know, is it is it ju- is it about um, you know, you come out of the faculty of social work. I mean, it, it, you know, from a therapeutic perspective, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 as a therapist myself, I'm not quite sure how you address a 13-year-old um, who not only will, you know, it's one thing to carry it to be the big shot, as Marcel was alluding to, you know, kind of gives you mm-hmm. grid, but to actually pull that trigger and take a life, man, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've worked with some pretty tough kids. I, I just, it's a, yeah. there's a different kind of kid that's got to think like that. Do you want to yeah. get up a minute left here no. before we go to break? Uh, what do you think on that? Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you so much for the question. So I think that what we really need to start uh, asking is not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. And as a clinician, we often talk about coming at it from a trauma-informed lens. Um, what we, uh, basically, what we're often seeing is youth are both a victim and perpetrator, but we're not unpacking that, right? We're not unpacking those trauma histories that have gone unchecked, unnoticed, unacknowledged, and, and quite honestly, not linked to proper resources to be able to deal with it. So those wounds are left to fester, Right. And, ha- and that anger and that rage has to go somewhere. And so I think a lot of times we're not ans- asking the right question in terms of not what's wrong with that kid, but what, what, what happened to you. Right. And unpacking that. I'm with uh, I'm with Tanya Sharp, associate professor, professor, University of Toronto and Marcel Wilson, a good friend, founder of One by One Movement. We're going to take a break here and come back in a couple of minutes. You guys are going to hang on and join me. OK, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Tanya and Marcel, you can hang on to the next segment. Absolutely. Okay, yes. Okay, perfect. Let's right here. Okay, we'll see you as soon as we get back from commercial. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me this evening. I'm with Tanya Sharp, Associate Professor, University of Toronto, and uh, a friend, uh, Marcel Wilson. Well, I guess Tanya's a friend now, too. I've broken the ice. Marcel Wilson, uh, founder of One by One Movement. Uh, the report, uh, Tanya's, uh, we're talking, go on to read a little bit here. The report led by U of T Associate Professor Tanya Sharp looks into the, how predominantly African-Canadian and black neighborhoods are increased risk and calls for both the collection of more race-based data and more research that amplifies the voices and experience of black survivors and homicide victims. The report was released this month by the University of Toronto. Uh, we need to talk about the ripple effect of homicide violence in black communities throughout the diaspora that has been under-researched and under-noticed. As we're sitting here in between break, there's been a new shooting at uh, Jane and Finch. Um, it seems to be seems to be daily news. I'm going to go back to Tanya here for a minute. Um, from a from a I guess from a community support perspective, um, you know, it, it it must be very frustrating to try to talk. You know, I'll, I'll get to Marcel here in a minute. Um, it must be very frustrating to have conversations with families and community leaders, where we know that you know the city, the province, the the, the federal government are you know have eyes on this problem the the, the youth gang vi- violence problem the gun violence problem in our country uh, but um, I think this is um, this is um, what we need to look at here is you know what do we need to do like for example right now there's trucks in in Ottawa that are um, <clears throat> that are um, um, you know, there, there's trucks in Ottawa that are trying to protest mandates and all kinds of things. I've, I've had this conversation with Marcel and Louis, be, Louis before many times. You know, why aren't we, why aren't we as, a, as a community, and I'm including myself, why aren't we as a community, and I'd be, at the, you know, be glad to be part of it, uh, why aren't we 
you know, putting our own protests together and doing our own almost Black Lives Matter kind of thing. And in fact, people like Black Lives Matter. Why aren't, why aren't we kicking up a bigger storm? Why is it, you know, mm-hmm. month after month, Marcel and Louis and myself and people, excellent people like you mm-hmm. having these conversations, we're not moving the needle. What do we got to do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great question. And, and, I, and I do think, number one, you've pointed out, if we just listen to the community, communities will always tell you what it is that they need. Um, I think there's a fundamental disconnect between policy and the, the you know, um, delving out of proper resources, both um, to Marcel's point on the prevention and intervention side. So we have to deal with the, the you know, disproportionate homicides that have occurred and the tremendous amount of grief that that has caused um, um, this, you know, African Caribbean Black communities, as well as create programming and pro, um, programs that have been and support programs that have been created by community members already that include uh, summer youth employment program opportunities, that include um, educational uh, preparation opportunities, um, as well as dealing with trauma, grief, and loss. Um, and so I think that those things are, are most paramount. But I also think Fundamentally, you know, I am simply amplifying the voices of the community. Folks have already been saying this for years. But in the absence of race-based data collection, people will create a narrative. And I think that's part of the problem, which is why we're trying to sort of match what the community is saying with data so that everyone else can get involved and see themselves as part of a solution versus just a problem over in a certain neighborhood. Uh, Marcel, um, according to the report, an average of 232 murders occurred in the province yearly with racialized Ontarians accounting for 75% of the victims, 44% of whom identified as African, Caribbean or black. You, you know, you work, you work, you work in the neighborhoods, you work in the communities that are most affected uh, by this. Um, are, are the youth that you talk, that you talk to, do they, are they, do they see themselves as rationalized and radicalized as, or excuse me, ration, racialized um, in terms of the approach, or do they just see themselves in a, in a bad spot and they don't see the colors behind it? Well, they, they, it's, they definitely understand that they're racialized. Um, the, you know, there's so many broken bits of the system that you can't help but to see, you know, when it, when you have a broken education system that, is particular to a specific area code. That's not necessarily a a black or, or culture thing, but they're 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 aware of it. Um, when they when they are going through the system, if if you know that happens, they definitely understand that they're being treated differently uh, than than their counterparts. Um, so so of course they're aware, and and that in itself breeds you know even through my own experiences of, as a former gang member, I understood those things from very young which in turn bred anger and, and confusion and frustration. And, and, and again, you know, growing up in a community where things are being gentrified around me and I'm seeing, you know, all these beautiful condos kind of go up around my neighborhood that I yeah. feel I can't access because I'm not yeah. being taught how to, you know, yeah. acquire those things. They yeah. definitely understand those things, brother. 
So in the communities, in a lot of the communities uh, lately, recently, in the last five, six years, there's been an immigration of some um, Eastern Bloc families. I've met several. You know a few, in, I'm sure, in your neighborhoods. You know, I guess the question is, if, if, if the buildings at, uh, let's just take it as an example, no, no slight on any particular neighborhood, but let's say the buildings that I'm mostly familiar with, like the Falstaff and, and Jane Street buildings, if they were filled with um, underprivileged, underserviced, underfinanced, underoperated, opportunity provided white people or you know caucasian or lighter skinned people from a different country do you think things would be different or is this really about and, and this may be a, a question for tanya is this maybe about the economic divide and the social divide and and the or is it a, is it a, a really a skin color issue i think the economic the educational divide the low pay pay wages divide yeah, the incarceration yeah. divide the surveillance yeah. divide is at sits at the root of anti-black racism. Racism. Period. Full stop. So and the white so, kids. So know, the white kids. So hang on. So the white kids or the the, the light-skinned kids in those neighbors, the Latino community from the Russian communities, Latino communities, uh, you know, other other parts of the world, um, Asian communities. They're they're not targeted the same way as the kids of of darker skin color in the same neighborhoods. If I may. Yeah, Marcel. Yeah, go please, ahead. Marcel. Please. Yeah, if I may. Um, I, I work in areas such as, you know, Regent Park or Alexandra Park. And, and you know, you see a, a, quite a diverse population in these places. And then if you look at, you know, some of the victims, of, you know, of these crimes, obviously we're, we're seeing a lot of different races that are involved in this. It affects everyone. So it is definitely, you know, there's a component of social classism that that, that is probably the main route. But you can't take away the fact that, race plays a big role in, in all the root cause risk factors, right? So if we're going to, we can't just spe- specify one, we have to deal with all of them. So definitely so- social classism, I would say is, is, is the root is one of the main roots, but, but, but race plays a huge role. You know, I'll tell you something I see. And I know that both of you, if we were together, we would say the same thing and you would hold my hand while I said it. I see kids as kids. I don't see them as a color. Uh, I see moms as moms and grannies and grannies and aunties and aunties and, de- and fathers as fathers. Um, we need to, as a community, uh, start doing that. We need to start paying attention that these are just children. They come from families. It doesn't matter where those families come from or what shade of whatever they may be. We're killing kids. Kids are killing kids. The system is killing kids. We're not providing the support for those kids and their families. We're just doing a horrible job. And thankfully, we have people like Tanya Sharp to continue. And by the way, you're going to, Tanya did such a good job. You're on our list now as a regular cast member. So congratulations. Oh, it comes, comes with no money, but a little bit of, a little bit of uh, clout. Um, and uh, Marcel, Marcel, as always, brother, you stay safe out there. We're going to have you guys come back and keep coming back and keep coming back until something changes, until something happens. So I uh, love you guys and uh, appreciate the hard work you do. Um, when we come back from break, uh, I'm going to lighten it up a little bit, talk to my friend Sean Shapiro. He's a police constable with Toronto Traffic Services, and he's doing something really cool. So let's talk about that. But don't forget, we're killing our kids, man. we got to pay attention and pay attention to their families and where this all comes from and yeah, this we're doing a terrible job as a community. Colors aside, be right back here. Yona Bud, six forty, Toronto. Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host Yona Bud, only on six forty, Toronto. Well, you've been out on the roads at all lately. You're talking about all these uh, traffic cops that are out there directing traffic, making sure that 
you don't get yourself hurt. And when you get into an accident, you know, if you, it's that kind of accident where cops actually have to show up, they actually show up. And these are the traffic cops. These are the people that are out there dealing with um, road traffic and uh, all the good, the bad, and the ugly that comes with that. Uh, months ago, I, 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 we found a, an expert on uh, on um, traffic law, uh, and uh, he joined us. And uh, we've continued to be friends. Um, his name is Sean Shapiro. He's a police constable uh, in Toronto here. Um, but we um, we became friends because I started following him on his live stream chats and videos. And uh, we have him with us here tonight because he does stay awake late. And uh, other than shoveling snow, he's probably not too busy because he does his work in the morning. Sean, welcome to the show. And I didn't realize that you're really underneath the uniform, that beautiful smile. You're a broadcaster. I, I, I Apparently, I'm doing a lot of things, including broadcasting. We're having a great time on social media. And uh, it, it's, it's fantastic. From where we were uh, a year ago to now, it's, it, you wouldn't believe it. Would you ever thought such? I mean, how long have you been on the job, brother? I've been with the service for 21 years. I started as a as an auxiliary, as a volunteer, became a court officer, and then transitioned to police constable. And uh, never in my wildest dreams did I think I'd be a face on social media and media, you know, speaking about the, the job and safety. So is this something that you kind of suggested was going to, uh, that something you were interested in doing? Or kind of how did this come about? How did we get the Ask PC Sean Shapiro uh, segments out there? Did the, the service come to you and say, hey, great smile, great, uh, great voice, and let's get you? Or did you kind of kind of set this up at some level? It, it, to say that it happened by accident is it couldn't be truer. It happened because I was involved in a motorcycle collision as a motor squad officer. I was on my motorcycle heading back to the station and someone pulled out of a parking lot of a gas station and we met in the middle and had a, had a collision. So I was, I was out of the game and I'm still out of the game. I can't go on the road. I'm, I'm injured. I have a disability. Uh, well, at least that's the classification because I am not able to uh, currently f- perform my function uh, on the road. I can't get in a police car and take off and do my thing. Uh, so I was accommodated. I was put into another position so I could still do useful work. And then this sort of happened by accident. I was a graphic artist, a photographer. Uh, I, I started doing all the social media uh, design and, and production. And then one day I, I just started doing some video segments and those video segments ended up going on t- uh, onto Twitter. And uh, and then we said, well, there's an investigation about some kids that were skateboarding off the Gardner Expressway. I don't know if you remember hearing that story. Sure I do. Yeah. Well, that was on TikTok. So I had to create a TikTok account. Now, before that day, TikTok was about you know, kids doing dances and themes yeah. and jokes, and it wasn't yeah. something for the police to get involved in, yeah. but things changed and we put up content and it took off. And you know, that was the start of something amazing. And then one day I said, Hey, what's this button that says go live. And now I go live every day. And uh, we, we speak <laughs> to sometimes 2,500 people in a room, 25,000 people over an hour asking their questions, just, uh, you know, want to know what's going on. And we, and we answer the questions live. Amazing. Amazing. I, 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 and, you know, surprisingly, uh, not surprisingly, but you, you are so good at it. Um, so let's, you know, we're talking about, you know, one day we had 38 views, one day you had 21 views, one day you had 41 views. Um, well, you, know, your view, you, some, you come, you come in from two, LinkedIn. Yeah, maybe whatever, YouTube, whatever, it doesn't matter, YouTube. 2.1, <laughs> uh, the two, two and a half, 2.1 thousand, a thousand and a half, a thousand three. Like, you got all, you got some serious traction here, brother. I don't think, I don't think I'm getting that many listeners on my show. Um, well, so I'm, I'm hoping maybe you'll have me on someday to, you know, I would love, well, I, I'd love to bring you out to the show. Uh, the, the, but here's the deal. Uh, what you're seeing is, so I, I simulcast. So when I go online and, and I'm, and the, the view that you're seeing when you're on LinkedIn or YouTube is going out on, on Twitter. Uh, Twitch, LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, multiple Facebook accounts. It goes on to the ones for Sean Shapiro, goes on the ones for the service. But our biggest audience is on TikTok. We have 554,000 followers on TikTok. Wow. We are the number one educational police channel 
in North America. And uh, wow. we have people from all over the world. People jump in and say, hey, I'm from Australia, from Ireland. Uh, I had some people from Germany jumping in. It's it's really amazing. And and that's our live segment. And the people who are consuming our, our canned or, or uh, pre-taped content, uh, it, we have videos. That, one, one video about tint, somebody lost their mind. They didn't like it. 6.6 yeah. 6 yeah. million views on one video. It's 27 <laughs> seconds long. That's amazing. I mean, truly, that's amazing. So obviously, you have a job when you finish the service. You'll, you'll, you'll open you'll, you'll open yourself a YouTube channel and make all kinds of cash. Uh, you'll be selling underwear and T-shirts and batons and nightlights and all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, but seriously, uh, like what type of – give me an idea of the type of uh, question you might get on an average day. Like are you are you sharing a story as you – like give me an idea how you do your, your, do your show. I've, I've listened to parts of it. I, I seem to be able to jump sure. in and out. But, um, you know, are you, do you start with a, with a sort of a theme for the day or you, you let the audience uh, direct it, your uh, content? It is entirely choose your own adventure. We've had a, we've experimented with a whole lot of different things, and and there are obviously messages that we look forward to sharing, but they they really come organically. You know, someone brings up a topic, I end up in a story about something afterwards. But we we focus on tint as uh, as as one of our viewers says uh, is is probably one of our number one topics and and you know what's the legal what's the, the legality of tint how much over the speed limit can you go uh can i get a ticket for speeding what happens if i get charged or suspended and they just have lots and lots of questions other people are like i having a hard time getting my g2 or my g because of the pandemic what do i do any tips like it is so organic and it's it's really it as a police officer, having the opportunity to help hundreds, if not thousands of people during an hour, and actually hundreds of thousands, now we're, honest to God, 2,500 people in a room watching, and uh, they come in for a minute, some stay for the entire hour. We have people who show up every single day. We have moderators who are volunteering to even help answer questions in the comments because it's just so busy. Everybody wants to to know what's going on and, and get safer and avoid tickets. So we're helping them do all those things. Have you, you think, have you, have you impacted... Um... You know yourself. First of all, how long have you been doing this, Sean? This is we started in March of last year when we really. Was, I opened the account the year before, the, and we didn't use it. We just had it for the investigation, uh, and then in March is when we started, and we went. You know, I thought success was hitting eighteen thousand followers because that's what we had on Twitter, and then we got to fifty thousand and a hundred thousand, and then overnight we had what, that six million video uh, view, and we ended up with three hundred thousand new followers. We had five. We just it hasn't ever stopped, and every time we think we've hit our peak and that we're going to plateau, and that's it, we get another hundred thousand or fifty. Like it, it's just. I, it's unpredictable. It's amazing. We really developed a community, and uh, I appreciate them as much as hopefully they appreciate me. Are you at, are you in a studio in your home? Or are you in the studio in the in the uh, precinct somewhere or in the division? So I, I we we had an idea. We shuffled some 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 uh, furniture. I used a uh, pop up uh, display that we used to use for trade shows because that's how we used to interact. We'd set yeah, up a trade yeah, show. We go to the yeah. boat show, the bike show. Yeah. So I used that as a background. We had some uh, some uh, fake uh, or, or replica street signs. I stuck those with thumbtacks to the wall, and that was my studio. So it's at work, and uh, I, I used all my own equipment for the first year. And the service is is loving what's going on. They've invested in. It. They bought their own equipment, and now my equipment has come home, and that's what I'm using right now for my basement. But uh, you know, it, I now can if if I if I I was on vacation, I took vacation for a week. I stayed in this every morning. I went live, so people uh, uh, could still have contact. That's amazing, and, and I can hear in your voice. This is something that really uh, really connects for you, and really is. Uh, I can hear how excited you are about doing it. Um, any other any other groups? Any other divisions? Any other? I know you're you're a traffic cop, and by the way, we're talking to. Uh, uh, PC Sean Shapiro. Um, what exactly is the name? How, how do how does somebody how do we tell somebody to listen into you on a, on, a, on a, in the mornings? 
so the segment's called Ask a Traffic Cop. So if you search the hashtag Ask a Traffic Cop, you'll find us. But we our, our username on uh, Twitter, if you want to follow us there, is Traffic Services on the, the same on TikTok. Uh, we're Traffic Services Toronto on Instagram Live, where we also broadcast. We have a YouTube channel, which is Traffic Services Toronto Police. And uh, it's all going out at the same time. Of course, our, our largest content pool or, or uh, you know source of information, if you want to go and look at hundreds of hours of, of content, you can go and do that on our uh uh, on our TikTok page where we have over 500 videos at this point, uh, which and, and I, I like to throw humor into it. It's got to be entertaining. No one's going to watch boring videos. Uh, but so, so I have fun making it. Uh, it's educational. And we, we've had such great feedback. I mean, folks who, who we've actually put a survey out recently uh, and we, we are looking for feedback to get an idea of who's watching us. What are they getting out of it? How do we make it better? Because at the end of the day, it's a product. It's all about them. We, you know, it's all about the viewers. It's all about helping them get the information they want. It's remarkable. I was going to ask you if any other units do it, like homicide or youth gang or gun violence. Any of these people have anything going like you've got? Nothing like we've got in particular. We are, I think, a standalone in the uh, in, in North America, at very least. I, I can't speak for the rest of the world. Uh, and we're, we're in direct connection with TikTok. We talk to them on a regular basis. And we have all the police uh, users in uh, North America that uh, that are on an email list. And we try and stay current. But we're the largest. And uh, we're the only one doing the live Q&A. At very, at very least, we're the only one doing the live Q and A uh, daily, Monday to Friday. There is Brooks, Alberta, who does a, a, a live as well. They're in our CMP detachment, and they've started doing it. Uh, but we, we, they're they're onboarding and bringing on more. Uh, police services all the time. I had a call from a chap in uh, Chicago. He's the media officer out there for Chicago police. And he says, listen, we love what you're doing. want to do exactly what you're doing over there. Can you help us? And I'm happy to help any police service that wants to get this level of engagement and, uh, and, and broaden their, their reach and, and to a different market. Like we're talking to people that we could never talk to before. Uh, we have young people who are on the platform and, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, we, we chat about all sorts of things, uh, but I've also had people reach out to me for other reasons off, you know, you're a friendly guy. It sounds like you, uh, you might be able to help me. And, we, and we've had some interesting chats about some things that were less fun topics, right? Someone who was, uh, you know, feeling about, uh, ending their life and they, they reached out and we ended up getting them some help. I'll tell you something, buddy. And you know, we're, how, how I feel about you and I'm uh, so impressed, but I now realize the backstory and, uh, I think, uh, clearly whatever, uh, led to that, uh, horrible event where you ended up in this accident, Somehow, some way, there's a, some guidance going on here because it sounds to me, my brother, like you've, uh, you've, like Stella's found his groove, so to speak, and uh, <laughs> you, you, you're, you're excellent at it, and want to continue to uh, to give you uh, give you uh, support as much as we can. We'll have you back on again. I want to, I'm just going to continue, maybe from time to time, as maybe some serious traffic stuff starts to happen. Uh, we'll get you back on again, but um, remarkable Anytime job. You want. Yeah, buddy. Remarkable job. Great voice. You're, you're so good at it. Uh, I'm talking to my friend Sean Shapiro. He's with Toronto Police Services. Uh, you can reach him or find out from him about his uh, program. Hashtag Ask a Traffic Cop and uh, you get out to him. And uh, he's a lot of fun to listen to. I, I do listen in and uh, Number one, he knows what he's talking about. And number two, he makes it fun. So, you know, traffic law may not be the greatest thing to be thinking about, but it may, in fact, save your life. And he's the guy to listen to. When we come back Tra from break, oh. thank you so much for having us. Um, best traffic cop out there doing what he needs to do from a, from a studio. He'll save more lives than the guys up and down the highways. Anyway, thank you so much for uh, listening to the first half of our show. When we come back, we've uh, got a whole bunch of new stuff. So we're going to take a longer break here and uh, do some uh, work here to pay for the ads and bring in some news. So go get yourself a drink. Go get yourself uh, go stretch your legs. Do what it is you need to do. We'll be back in a few minutes. And we got another hour of some really cool stuff. So we'll see you in just a few minutes. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. 
You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And good evening. Welcome back to the show. This is Yona Bud here on Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. More Quebec teen girls hospitalized for suicide behavior, suicidal behavior, excuse me, in 2022. The number of teenage girls who visited Quebec hospital emergency rooms after attempting to take their own lives rose by 23%. In 2022, in a report published Monday, the Institute said that for every 100,000 girls aged 15 to 19, 1,600, 1,630 visited a hospital in 2021 because of suicidal thoughts, and 20 and 227 went to a hospital because they had attempted to take their own lives more than twice the rate among any other group of uh, or, or gender, for that matter. Um, Quebec said, well, girls 15 to 19 are more likely to use hospital services related to suicidal behavior. They have one of the lowest suicide rates in the province, two factors that may be related. Uh, Maybe young girls go to the hospital more quickly because their family members take care of them faster, she said in an interview, uh, according to this expert. The report also found that the number of girls aged 10 to 14, 10 to 14, who went to hospital after attempting suicide in Quebec rose from 49.2%, sorry, 49.2 per 100,000 in 2019 to 90.9 per 100,000 people in 2021, an increase of almost 80%. Joining me this evening is Dr. Brian Greenfield. He's a psychiatrist at Montreal Children's Hospital. Uh, Good evening, Dr. Greenfield. How are you? (laughs) I'm fine, and how are you doing? I'm good, and it's okay if your doggy barks in the background because we love hearing life. And uh, screaming children and dogs are beautiful, so uh, no need to hush them up. Maybe just give them a treat or something, huh? Anyway, <laughs> thanks for joining us this evening, um, sure. Doctor. This is these these are devastating numbers. Uh, ages ten to fourteen. You know, I, I've been in practice forty-five years. I'm now seeing more kids, twelve-year-old, thirteen-year-old, fourteen-year-olds with um, addiction issues and all kinds of other uh, self-harm and suicidal thoughts. What's going on, and what do you think we're doing wrong as a society these days? Um, I have I have a different perspective, um, and my perspective is driven by years of work with the, in the emergency room with these youth. Um, there's no doubt that COVID has taken its toll on the mental health of the population, for sure. Um, and there is an equation that uh, links adversity, and adversity broadly defined as bad events like uh, divorces, sexual, physical abuses, neglect, alcoholism, drugs in the parents, etc., with a psychiatric disorder. Um, psychiatric disorder could be um, attention deficit hyperactivity with irritability. It could be panic attacks. It could be separation anxiety. There are all kinds of disorders. Um, when you combine the adversity with the psychiatric disorder, you have a vulnerability to suicide. Um, thank God the ratio of actual completed suicides to attempts and to suicide thoughts or ideation is a very, very small ratio. Thank God. And I see the increase in visits to emergency rooms for suicidality evaluation um, as in part a reflection of the stresses of COVID. Um, But I also see it there's a healthy component to it, and uh, that's a silver lining in the cloud. And I don't think... What do you, what do you, what do you mean by that? What's the healthy component? 
I think society is getting healthier it, from the perspective of stigma. I think uh, we're less inclined uh, to say that suicidality is, yeah. we should be hush-hush about it, and that psychiatric disorders, we should ignore them, suppress them. I think teachers, administrators are more open to considering that these youth are suffering and they need psychiatric care um, or, or care from a health professional. And so they're more inclined to send them for help. And I find that very healthy. Now, I'm not wishing for our numbers in the emergency room to, to be high, um, but I am impressed that many school administrators, teachers, police, uh, social workers um, are able to identify these youth sooner now um, and have a lower threshold to send them for help. And we can do a lot to help them. We could do enormous uh, work to help the youth in crisis. Now, the, the under age 14 is also not a surprise to me. And um, Dr. Brett Burstyn and took the lead on an article that was submitted to um, JAMA PEDS. Actually, it was um, Holly Agostino uh, and Brett and I who, who co-authored an article. This was in 2019, documenting a doubling in the rate of presentations to emergency rooms across the United States for suicidality from roughly 2007 to 2015. And the age group that was most represented for the increase were those who were younger, um, under 12. And under 12, lo and behold, you see a lot more of what we call the externalizing disorders, disorders of youth that the youth themselves are not aware of, but people around them are. And like, that like would give, give us an example of the, some of those. Um, some of those. That would uh, include the attention deficit hyperactivity impulsivity disorder, right, right. and that was always present in society. Um, but now we're flagging it and we're saying, "Hey, there's a problem here. Let's get these kids help." And what happens with the irritability, the impulsivity, is that the youth will have arguments, let's say, with their parents. And the parents very appropriately will scold them and punish them. And in so doing, the youth perceives that they're a burden to the parents and wrongfully concludes that their parents would be better off without them. Um, and that's, uh, that's too, much a very, burden, too much of a burden on their folks, too much trouble. Yes. And what we need to do is to address the original root cause, which is the irritability, once we address that and we can heal it and we can suppress it, we can treat the kid, the irritability decreases or resolves completely. There's no more the argument and the parent no longer punishes the child unnecessarily and the child, their self-esteem spontaneously improves, their depression improves and their suicidality resolves. What are the what are the modality, Doctor Greenfield? What are the You know, we're just on limited time. I'd love to just let you go on and on, but uh, got to get some questions in here. What are the modalities um, used um, to to help young people? What, what are we talking about? Mindfulness, CBT, like what kind of what modalities are you finding that uh, seem to be uh, effective? 
Um, when you say mindfulness and CBT, what you're talking about are talking cures, and they're wonderful. They're a blessing because the youth have a need to explore their feelings, um, to hear about their adversity, um, to be coached in how to overcome the adversity, um, and to, to have a narrative shift, to be told, look, you're not weak and stupid. You're actually quite strong and courageous to continue going to school despite the divorce, the abuse, whatever. And that's very strong. And you find that in a verbal form of treatment. And so our first pass would be a verbal form of treatment. Now, if the distress doesn't resolve after some course of verbal therapy, perhaps a month or two, then we might consider using medication um, as, an, as an adjuvant to the therapy. And, but, and but, the two of them together are very effective for most, form, most disorders. So the, 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 tr- the truth be told, the majority of the patients that I see or families I speak to with the kids in my practice you know, often say that, you know, they, they have a psychiatrist, they're on medication, uh, they see the psychiatrist once, or, you know, once every couple of months, it's a 20, you know, 15, 20 minute uh, meeting about how the med's doing, how you're feeling and so on. Um, I know that for the most part, uh, medical practitioners and psychiatrists, especially and those providing that kind of frontline front care, hard to find the time to um, provide these young people with an ongoing talk therapy plan to augment, to augment their, their med regime. How do, you, how do you kind of make all that work? It's, uh, it's a, a $64,000 question. Huh. Um, I, you know, we, with COVID's onslaught, society has seen how therapists are in very short supply. And we need trained professionals out there that understand adversity and understand psychiatric disorders um, and can help heal these youth. Um, the psychiatrist, unfortunately, over the past 20 years, uh, our, our role has um, been somewhat restricted to consultation and uh, to pharmacologic management using medication. Um, and a lot of times the Role, the, the psychotherapy part, the verbal therapy, has been delegated to non-psychiatric colleagues, which is fine. Um, I mean, if, if, this is, if we can access a larger segment of the population distress using this algorithm, that's fine. Uh, but we do need the therapists. We need the therapists out there to talk with these kids. Once we do that, we can do a lot of good healing. But I think we're finding now with covid um, revealing more and more of the, the weaker foundation that I think was always there, we're going to need more and more therapists to help heal these youth. I'm talking to Dr. Brian Greenfield. Unfortunately, you ran out of time. Um, doctor, you're prepared to come back again some other time? We'd love to have you on. Um, With pleasure. And, uh, yeah, and uh, let me wish you a Shavua Tov, if that means anything to anybody. That certainly <laughs> should mean some, something to you and to me. Uh, let's get through this crazy world. Thank you, my friend, for joining us. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the overwhelming. What a great guy. Like, just sort of totally gets it. Uh, Brian Greenfield, he's a psychiatrist at Montreal Children's Hospital and I think now a new friend of our show. We're going to be right back. Yonabud, 640, Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yonabud on 640, Toronto. We found that pretty universally, the pandemic seemed to be impacting 
all physicians. Mental health and physical health can no longer be viewed as two separate things, and we need both aspects of our health to be on point uh, to be healthy, and that's true for physicians as well. Welcome back to the show. This is Yona on the Road to Recovery here on 640 Toronto. Thank you for joining us this evening. You know, there's a demand for mental health uh, care, um, and as that mental health demand um, skyrockets beyond belief, beyond anybody's possible uh, predictions, um, the, the, the supply, the, the support groups, you know, the doctors, the nurses, psychiatrists, psychologists, but specifically at the, at the level of therapy, psychiatrists, psychologists, folks like me, um, we are dealing with an, unher- an unprecedented amount of um, demand in terms of people needing our time and uh, abilities and skills and whatever. But, it, you know, it's not without taking its toll. You know, I do what I got to do, and everyone else I'm sure does what they need to do to kind of stay focused and uh, able to do our job. Uh, but Toronto psychiatrist Dr. Yusra Ahmad, um, she's in, her, she got an infectious laugh talk to her in a minute. I'm hoping she's going to laugh for me. You're going to have to tell a joke. But the single mother and the survivor of domestic violence worries about her 12-year-old daughter learning virtually online school is difficult for her and difficult also for, for, for the child and for her. She had to leave her in-person work at Toronto General Hospital when her daughter's schooling moved to online in 2020 and is relieved that classrooms are now set up to go back to school as it was last week. Uh, she now sees patients online, many of whom struggle with the same pandemic stress, loneliness, and anxiety that she suffers from, like most of us. Besides her practice, she's an advocate against gender-based or racial and religious violence and uh, understands that from personal experience. Uh, Dr. Ahmad, thank you for joining us tonight. Dr. Ahmad. Okay, well, having just some technical difficulty. Okay. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> okay, okay, get out of the, come out from underneath the closet. <laughs> Open the open the door and, and let you know. Tell the kids to go away, and you don't have to hide in the closet. Oh gosh! <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? I actually had a patient tell me they were doing their work from their um, their walk-in closet for like like a month, and uh, I said, "Well, you got to probably find a better solution." I got people working out of their cars anyway. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, one of these days, I'm really hoping I'm going to hear that infectious laugh that people talk about. Crazy times, right? I don't know if therapists like you and I can say that, but crazy times, unprecedented for sure. Um, how are you managing? Uh, absolutely, I agree with you. Uh, these are unprecedented times. Uh, and you can hear me, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I promise. Okay, okay good, good. Uh, how am I managing? Well, uh, like everybody else, I'm doing the best I can with what I have. So what is it? Can I? I mean, I'm going to drill down a little bit if you don't mind. It's kind of my job, but you can stop me if at any point that you feel uncomfortable. What does that mean? Like, if I was your patient and I said, "Doc, I'm just doing the best I can with what I got," what would you say to them? Would you say, "Okay, well, that sounds great," or would you say, "Okay, can you can you tell me a little bit about that?" Yes, I would be drilling down. Okay, so um, tell me a little bit about that. Y- yeah. So, you know, uh, I think. I think I am in a position of some privilege, right? That I have the ability to pay for certain services. So I am, for example, going to see a chiropractor regularly because my stooped posture uh, from hunching over all my devices is really getting to me. So, you know, they're, they're making a killing off of me. My uh, chiropractor (laughs) is a therapist. (laughs) There's that laugh. Thank you. (laughs) 
No, but you know what? But you know what? I, you know, all kidding aside, like, you know, you and I both know that the physical part has an awful lot to do with how the mental part works, right? Well, you know, maybe you want to share how that, that experience works for you. Like after your adjustments and such, do you really feel a relief like that stress relief? Absolutely, I do. Uh, yes, you cannot separate these aspects of a human being. And I will add to it, there's the mental part, there's the physical part, there's the emotional, and there's the spiritual. Uh, and all all parts need to be attended to. And furthermore, you know, the provision of proper um, mental health care just cannot occur in a vacuum. We're all interconnected beings, right? So, uh, yeah, so on that note, for example, I take regular walks in the park by my house if I can. Um, I live in a condo building and there's a gym, so I was going there regularly as well. But uh, unfortunately, it's been closed down again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I feel it. I feel it. So, yes, exercise affects your mood. It affects your ability to sleep, good, uh, proper nutrition. You know, all of these things matter. Uh I, again, like I, I'm saying, because I'm a physician, I have a measure of privilege in terms of accessing some of this. But others in our society uh, can't, you know, and, and this is something we need to look into. So that's a great segue for me, actually. So what's happening to the patients who, like, actually can't be seen in person? So I have a practice. Uh, I, 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 I moved quickly to a virtual practice, and we see a ton of people virtually that I've never seen in person. But I think if there's people who have, you know, let's say, seen, you know, been seeing you regularly in office and now need to see you on screen, how are you feeling that's affecting your ability to, you know, to provide the care that they need and their ability, more importantly, to receive it? Yes. Uh, many of my patients have been asking me when I'll go back to in-person therapy sessions because there's a huge difference when you are um, face-to-face with somebody in a room. There's the therapeutic space. You know, a lot of uh, patients I'm seeing are doing what you said, like hiding in rooms or going for walks outside to ensure confidentiality because they don't want to, you know, their spouse to hear what they're saying or other family members. They don't have that privacy in their own home. And on that note, uh, you know, home is not a safe place for everybody. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big advocate uh, around gender-based violence, and I suffered from this situation myself when I was in uh, residency. And it's something our provincial government doesn't pay any heed to, you know. Um, it's a predictable uh, outcome in times of economic and social crises that there's an uptick in violence across the board, but particularly when it com- comes to interpersonal violence at home. Yeah, I would say the, um, you know, I did, a, I did a show about a month or so ago, maybe a bit longer on domestic violence and had some legal people on to talk about, you know, it from a, you know, legal perspective. I deal with a lot of patients uh, that uh, come to us with issues around uh, traumatic stress related to violence and so on. Um, but, you know, and by the way, if people don't understand who this lady is, this is not just anybody. This is Dr. Yusra Ahmed. She's a physician. She's a psychiatrist, a group therapy provider, but she's also the creator of something called Mindfully Muslim, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, clearly, you're stretched out. In other words, you know, you're touching, trying to touch the world in places where you think you can make a difference, and, you know, God bless you for that. But at the, same t- at the same time as stretching out, like you and I both know, right? At the you know, times of stretching out, trying to just help a little bit more and do a little bit more, sometimes, you know, 
us as us as providers of the care think that maybe we're a little more superhuman than we really are. And at some point we stretch ourselves thin. I, I found myself scaling it back a little bit as much as it made me cry to turn certain patients away. But, you know, I needed to get myself together. Um, yeah. from the, things that you're, the things that you're involved in, I'm sure this is not just something you do when you're practicing, but I'm sure this is something you take to bed with you. Yes, I uh, live and breathe this stuff. And, uh, yeah, we are drowning in it now, you know. Uh, this, I mean, really, we are witnessing system failure, in my opinion. And the alarm bells were ringing for many of us a long time ago, but really nobody in actual positions of power paid any heed. Um, and I would argue that we live in a, a, a very sick society uh, and that the mental health issues, the addictions crises swirling around us and overwhelming us. And this is a symptom, the burnout of the providers are just strong signals of a broken and ailing system. How does this get better, doctor? We've got limited time, but uh, let me ask you something before I do lose you. Would you come on again? Because I'd love to talk to you about other stuff. You just sound like a... The kind of person I'd like to, you know, share and chat with. Would you be kind absolutely. enough to come back another time? Okay, perfect. Uh, absolutely. Said, what else? You, what else you doing at nine thirty on a Saturday night, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So listen, right before I let you go, how does this get any better, or does it get any better? We got about a minute. Mm. Well, I think it, it it gets better from the ground up. People need to band together and demand change. Uh, you know, we have to hold our politicians accountable. And uh, we need to work together in creative and dynamic ways to come up with uh, solutions. In fact, the solutions are well known. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, you know, it's a, a matter of finding the will to implement them. And, and, and where do you think that will is going to come from? Is it going to, is it going to require, you know, the, the, the misfortune of one of our politicians' families or, you know, someone in the Trudeau family, God forbid, having an overdose? Like, what's it going to take for our leaders, quote unquote, and I say that tongue in cheek, our, our leaders to wake up and realize that the pandemic is one thing, but you're not going to jab yourself away from the mental health and addiction crisis. It's going to be at least decades coming. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, yes. Leaders, when it hits them personally, for sure, they pay attention differently. But in addition, they, they are our public servants. They work for us. We are their constituents and we need to become more politically engaged. Well, it sounds like uh, <laughs> it sounds like burnout or not, you still got a ton of energy. I want to see where you get some of that and talk to you another time for sure. <laughs> uh, um, thank you for joining us. I'm sure, so sorry you ran out of time. You're 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 a wonderful guest, and hope to talk to you again, Doctor Yusra Ahmed. She is a physician, psychiatrist, group therapy facilitator, also the creator of Mindfully Muslim. Um, just a really nice lady trying to make the world a better place. Thank you for being on the show with us, Yonabad, six forty, Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. It's a very, very strict application. It has to come from a physician and or a therapist, and it has to tick many boxes. Um, you have to be severe or in a life-threatening situation. You have to have tried everything else. My partner, who's a psychiatrist, um, has looked me in the eye and says psychedelics are going to transform her profession as a psychiatrist. Thank you, and welcome back. You're on the road to recovery here with Yona Budd on 640 Toronto. We appreciate you joining us this evening. A doctor and a psychologist say that Health Canada's move to allow physicians to request restricted psychedelic drugs for patients as part of their psychotherapy 
is a positive step in the right direction in terms of transforming mental health care. They say the recent change to the special access program isn't enough, though. We still have a huge amount of work to do because these medicines could really, really revolutionize the entire mental health field, according to Dr. Michael Verbora, Verbora, excuse me, who works as the medical director at Field Trip Health here in Toronto. And um, I don't want to get too far ahead, he says, with this, where the science is going, but I do really, really believe that if people have a process to start their own healing, it can lead to a much much better world for most people. Uh, Health Canada has said requests to be considered on a case-by-case basis for serious or life-threatening conditions uh, and where other conventional treatments have failed and are unsustainable uh, for, or unsuitable, excuse me, for uh, patients. Uh, uh, Verboro goes on to say that uh, change isn't designed to have a wait list because it's meant for emergencies. Health Canada has said applications will be processed within two days, but it's unclear when a decision would be made. Joining me this evening is Ronan Levy. He's the uh, executive chairman of Field Trip Health. Thank you, Ronan, for joining us this evening. How are you? Uh, my pleasure. I am doing okay. I'm actually recovering from a, a case of COVID, so if I sound a little bit coffee or sniffly, I apologize, but uh, I'm on the mend. No, I was going to say, hey, what's up with the sexy voice? And before you out me on the <laughs> air, um, I know I owe you I owe you a bagel and a coffee, so I just figured I'd let you know 100,000 people hear me tell you that, so uh, we're definitely <laughs> going to have to get together. But, but get over the COVID and send me a negative test. Anyway, Ronan, um, the, here we are uh, at, a, at, a, at a place where I think you, know, you and your folks have worked real hard to get to, uh, where now uh, the government's considering the use of, uh, of magic mushrooms, uh, perhaps ketamine, LSD, MDMA, uh, which is uh, the con- active ingredient in ecstasy, uh, lots of ch- stuff changing on the horizon in terms of the ability to access it. Uh, but I guess the, um, the threshold still becomes almost impossible for the average person. Are we still seeing that? I mean, you know, you, you're, maybe we should tell people a little bit about what Field Trip does first um, and then maybe carry on and answer that question. Field Trip uh, is, is committed to doing what? Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're uh, really building infrastructure necessary to deliver psychedelic-assisted therapies. So across North America, we have 11 locations providing ketamine-assisted therapy. So there's no restriction on access to ketamine or ketamine-assisted therapy in most jurisdictions around the world. Uh, And in the Netherlands, we're actually working with psilocybin-assisted therapy because it is legal there using psilocybin truffles. Uh, So that's what we're doing, and we're seeing just absolutely incredible results with the patients who come through our therapies. You know, on average, most people have four to six ketamine sessions over the course of, say, four to six weeks on average, uh, interspersed with psychotherapy sessions, integration sessions. And we see patients improve from severe depression and anxiety symptoms going down to mild symptoms. uh, And those benefits sustain for 120 days or, or longer on average. So as far as I'm aware, and certainly I'm not objective, but as far as I'm aware, uh, I don't I don't think there's a better treatment option for depression or anxiety out there bar none right now. And I think the, the things that are coming down the pipes with psilocybin and MDMA-assisted therapy are only going to further improve the results that we're already seeing. What type of, um, you know, I'm a, little, I'm a little sort of, you know, curious, the type of therapy that supports the um, is it, is it, am I talking about a trip here? Am I talking about a psychedelic trip? Or am I talking about a treatment? To, like, how do you refer to the experience? Yeah, we use the term trip. We use the term journey. So, so what we're talking about here, what a typical experience would be like, and it, and it does depend on the nature of the medicine. Uh, so the experience with MDMA might be different from psilocybin, might be different from ketamine. But what we're talking about presently is a person would come in, you know, after we do our screening, both medically and from a psychiatric perspective, uh, meet with a therapeutic team. After that first meeting, they'd come back usually a separate day uh, for 
for the first ketamine session. Um, it's usually a low dose of ketamine, uh, but it can be pretty consuming and you do generally have a relatively psychedelic experience as, as many people might conventionally conceive of. Uh, there is a therapist sitting with you the entire time um, following the, the effects of the ketamine, which lasts about an hour to an hour and a half. It's, it's not a terribly long experience. Uh, there's an opportunity to talk with your therapist. Most people are not terribly verbal during the actual trip itself, uh, but afterwards they, they tend to share what came up. And I think that's an important part of the therapeutic process. Um, and then, you know, a day or two later, we do an integration session, which is there's no drug involved. There's no medicine. We're just using conventional cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, motivational interviewing, behavioral activation, that kind of stuff, um, where we take the insights that came out of the psychedelic experience. Because during the trip, uh, very often people are able to revisit past traumas or see the world from a different lens or, you know, just see things or have a different outlook. And during those integration sessions, the therapist can help you really integrate that into your psyche and turn it into lifestyle change as well. Because we know lifestyle and, and eating habits and exercise and all this kind of stuff as well uh, is an important part of one's mental health. So it really is quite a robust experience and, and really hits on many different aspects of mental health and well-being to, to lead to these transformative outcomes. What, what's the what's the skill set of the uh, of the therapy uh, the therapy provider? Are we talking about a psychotherapist? Are we talking about a uh, you know a social worker? Are we talking about what, what kind of what, when they're sitting with a therapist? Give me an idea of the the, the modality or the or perhaps the, the training credentials that each of those uh, therapists, if you will, would have um, in this particular setting. Yeah, it depends uh, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, but by and large, you know, anyone who's qualified to provide psychotherapy uh, is, is someone who's well-suited in our eyes uh, to be at least a, a good candidate as a therapist. So in Ontario, we have clinical psychologists with PhDs, we have um, people with masters of social work who are qualified social workers because they're also qualified to provide psychotherapy. We have licensed psychotherapists as well. If you go to California or New York, the nomenclature can change a little bit, but the, the standard is still the same, which is if you're qualified to provide psychotherapy as broadly defined, then, then you know, from our perspective, you're, you're qualified as a candidate. Most of our therapists come with some degree of psychedelic therapy training. So we offer internal training, experiential training, um, but there's uh, at least one institution, the California Institute for Integral Studies, that offers a master's in psychedelic therapies, uh, and MAPS, <clears throat> which is a nonprofit organization in the U.S., uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is actually the organization leading the phase three clinical trials for MDMA-assisted therapy with the FDA, also offers MDMA-assisted therapy. There's a Canadian nonprofit called Theracil, uh, which has actually got the government to grant a Section 56 exemption for them to train people on psilocybin-assisted therapy. So there's a number of different uh, training um, providers in Canada and the U.S. that help people with the basic training in psychotherapy become more experienced with hands-on training uh, with psychedelic therapies. Have you uh, been on a trip yourself, brother? I, I have. I have. You know, I... Um, I would have considered it disingenuous to start a company, you know, really investing in these therapies uh, without having some hands-on knowledge. Uh, so I have experienced ketamine-assisted therapy, um, and I have also experienced other psychedelic-assisted therapies, generally in jurisdictions where it's legal to do so. Um, but, uh, yeah, I felt it was important personally to know uh, what I was getting involved with. And, and when you speak to many people in the psychedelic industry, they 
strongly, strongly recommend that uh, no one become a therapist until they've had the experiences themselves because it really is an ineffable experience. And if you haven't experienced it, it's really hard to comprehend what your clients may be going through on a mental or emotional journey. I'm talking to uh, Ronan Levy. He's the executive chairman of Field Trip Health, and um, I hope you recover real quick from this hoarse and uh, scratchy voice, and I will Thank get you. you up for that bagel and coffee because I want to learn a lot more about what you're doing. And, uh, and uh, yeah, just a real good guy. So thank you so much for being here tonight, knowing that you weren't feeling great. Uh, I hope this, uh, hope that you're able to just save more lives, man. I know that that's what you're committed to doing, and that's why you're in business. So uh, Thank you. Thank to- you. Hats off to you, my brother. Um, Thank and, you. Uh, hope, hope you feel better real soon. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey there, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. You are the best audience ever, and I don't get a chance to tell you. I want to tell you that I love you guys, and you uh, just uh, make my evening, and I hope we're able to do the same for you. It's great to share. Love to hear from you a little bit more, 416-870-6400. You need to write that down for the future and give us a call. And if you're outside of our area, 888-225-8255. In this virtual world, there is no outside. Yona can find you anywhere. I will come to your house, knock on the door, and say, hey, it's me. Let's chat. Not really, but sort of. Anyway, perseverance is a quality that creates winners. It's determining to keep going despite facing obstacles. So what is perseverance, actually? It's determining to keep on going in the face of setbacks and challenges. It's the inner drive that keeps you in the game when everything else says, it's time to give it up. You got to quit. You know, is that good one and the bad one in your shoulder, the one that's, you know, dressed in one outfit and the one that's dressed in the other? I like to say the white outfit, the black outfit, or the, the red one, the green one, whatever, the two different colors. And it's those people, that inner self-talk, right? That's the drive inside you that says, yeah, we can do this, or I don't think so. I'm not going to do this. I'm going back home. It's resolving to put one foot after another when the finish line is nowhere in sight. You just got to keep going. It's like stormy day where you just, ever been in a snowstorm or a rainstorm and you're stuck between place and place? And you got to keep just put your head down, cover yourself up the best you can and somehow get through it because you know once you get there, you're going to be clean and dry. Maybe get something good to eat and something warm to drink. It's staying power to follow through and exert effort till you actually get to your goals, till you actually see your dreams and visions come true. Practicing perseverance, most, for most people, the typical journey to achieving success spans over many years, sometimes decades. I've been at this game for a long time. I'm still learning. I'm still doing. I'm still trying to keep my head down and stick my my feet one foot after another to try to keep going. Because I'll tell you, my friends, I love doing what I do, and it's amazing to help and save lives and do that. But we shake our heads from time to time because it's just getting uglier, and patients are getting younger, and the situations are getting darker. But I have perseverance. I keep my head down, and I keep one foot after another, and I just keep going. You know, they shut down the studios, they shut down offices. We learned how to do things virtually. We found ourselves a virtual medical app, started connecting our patients through that, and here we are two years later seeing hundreds of people saving all kinds of lives. So it's the keep going part. It's the keep going because we have to determine that it makes a difference in our lives and the lives of others. We keep going because we have a purpose. How do you keep going walking in the desert when you're thirsty and there's no water in sight? Somehow people manage They somehow endure hardships and challenges and failures and actually come out the other side stronger. I know you've heard it before and it sounds like a bunch of crap, but no. Should you be the one quitting when others are quitting? Should you quit if you're not achieving your goals fast enough? These are questions to ask yourself. Should you quit when you face obstacles? The answer to all of these is no. Should you quit when no one believes in your dreams? Should you quit when you doubt yourself? No. If you don't don't believe in your dreams, 
No one's going to believe in your dreams. And if people don't believe in your dreams, it doesn't mean that they can see your vision. And sometimes it's important that we follow our dreams and our visions just because it's the right thing to do for us. You don't have to doubt yourself. It's not going to be, you know, a vision, a tr- a vision of, a, of a path has to include bumps and humps along the road. You have to pack the extra lunch and the dry clothes and maybe a gas can for you never know what's going to happen along the ride. Having a clear vision, there are very few oversights and very few overnight, excuse me, very few overnight successes. And that's an oversight for most people. Can't read my own writing. You have to do the work, man. You got to pee and put the time in. You got to go the distance. When I first learned how to box, when I was a little kid, I never got even, I never got to put boxing gloves on for almost a year and a half. I kept wanting to, but all I did was get stuck in front of a mirror, shadow boxing and hitting a heavy bag and learning how to use the speed bag and learning how to skip and punching and looking at myself in the mirror week after week after week after week after week until it was time to put gloves on. And of course, I did so horribly and got knocked down immediately, but I kept getting back up and keep going. And, you know, I was pretty good at it after a while. You have to have a clear vision. It doesn't take time. It does take time. Your hunger for success should push you and drive you forward not set you back. You got to want it more than anything. People that call me and say, I really want to get help. I really want to get past my addiction issues, my mental health issues. And I tell them, you got to crawl. You got to be prepared to crawl across broken glass to get the help that you need. Are you? Are you prepared to put the same time and energy and wear your shoes and socks in the snow like you would to go out and get high, to, to, to meet a dealer halfway across the city, taking six buses and a subway to try to spend 50 bucks for that 20-minute high? Can you put that same energy into reaching your vision and your dream of doing well? If the answer is yes, I'm your guy. If the answer is no, you need to call somebody else right now until you're really ready. And when you're ready, let's rock and roll. Just like when you set out on a road trip, you need to chart out your in your mind at least some mental map, some GPS on how you know you're going to get there. And then how do you handle the setbacks when they happen? You know how? You keep pushing. Excuse me. You learn from them. You keep pushing. And you enjoy the process of working through it. you got to enjoy the downtimes as much as the uptimes. you got to see them as opportunities. The more you get knocked down, the more you pick yourself up. That's how you become resilient. That's how you, you learn to persevere. makes you a better person. Success has challenges and setbacks all along the way. Most super wealthy people, if that's your measure of success that I know, had setbacks at least once or twice in business. Maybe one bankruptcy or two. Have lost a business or two. Who knows? Large, large amounts of money lost and gained. But at the end of the day, those that bounce back are the ones that do well. On the other hand, to avoid getting overwhelmed by setbacks, it pays on a regular basis to take care of yourself. It contributes to your ability to be perseverant, to be able to preserve, to keep going, right? To persevere. You got to eat well, stay hydrated, exercise, lots of sleep, good sleep. That puts you in a better mindset to deal with your challenges as you progress and go forward. Cultivating a supportive uh, network, friends. People that can be there to support you, have a trusted confidant to talk to, open up to, and share your feelings with. Surround yourself with a network of supporters, people that are there, family, colleagues, people in your in your office if you need that kind of support. Whenever you feel overwhelmed and anxious by how much work there's still and how much time it's going to take to get to the big picture, just enjoy the one day at a time, so to speak. That mindfulness moment of checking off in your box the successes you've made that day. Not what's going to be three months from now. That's a vision. That's a dream. That's a, a plot on a map. But right now it's foot over foot, step over step. You got to encourage yourself. The second worst offender to progress is negative thoughts, negative self-talk, we say. 
It's a cancer to that process. It causes many people to quit prematurely before they actually even face any disappointments or setbacks. We have a great job of being able to sell ourselves on the fact we're never going to make it. You know what? That same energy, that same sales pitch can be turned around. And you can sell yourself on your ability to be successful. I think I can do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep, keep going until I get to where I need to get to. It doesn't matter what happens along the way. You have to be prepared to deal with this, you know, discouragement. There are going to be things along the way, obstacles, things that you know, get in the way. You have to be able to find your inspiration by closing your eyes and seeing what that vision portfolio looks like. What do those images look like? What does it look like when you get to where you're going to? What does it physically look like? Can you feel and smell the air? Can you smell and feel the, the, the leaves around you if it's that or the sand under your feet if that's part of your vision or the success of sitting behind a fancy desk in a big office staring out the window overlooking the city from your successful business operation? you got to plan and prepare the best you can. And by the way, when you plan and prepare, you've also got to set yourself up for a plan B. You've always got to give yourself an out, something else to do if it doesn't work out. Okay, so if this guy doesn't want to talk to me, I'm going to talk to this guy. If this person doesn't want to buy my products, I'm going to try to talk to this person. If this person can't help me online, I'm going to find them not talk to you. You have an, an alternative along the way. There's always another road. Whenever Duncan and I go on a road trip, there's an A road and a B road. So the one is, you know, usually the one we take is the most scenic. But if we're in a hurry, we've got to get somewhere quickly. We find ourselves to the one that's quicker, more expedient, and usually less pretty, you know, not as nice a drive. And the lessons that you learn from perseverance Key lessons to learn from perseverance and handling setbacks include challenges make you stronger. You need to understand, and they strengthen your ability to face and conquer more adversity in the future. You become more confident from overcoming your difficulties and your adversities. You learn from your mistakes by analyzing what went wrong and reassessing your tactics and trying again. That's what this is all about. That's how we operate. That's how we do better. You identify new ways to tackle tasks. You accomplish more tasks with a renewed vision and a renewed plan. And a few perseverance quotes that you've heard from experts, I'm sure, or, you know, Emerson here, Ralph Waldo Emerson, our greatest glory is not in never failing, but in rising up every morning, the time that we fail. Every time that we fall, we should pull, pick ourselves up. Patience and perseverance have a magical effect before which difficulties disappear and obstacles vanish, according to John Quincy Adams. And Thomas Edison, what did he say? Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up inches away from seeing their success. Ladies and gentlemen, you're the best audience ever. Remember, hug each other, love each other, be kind to one another, spread nice, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for joining me on the Road to Recovery here on Global News Radio Toronto. I'm Yonabad. Have a great week.